Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and my two scholars and gentlemen with me on this fine Friday morning are Phil Duffy, our Constitutional Instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom as he defends the God-given right to keep and bear arms. By the way, Mike has a great show just before hours on Friday mornings at 7 a.m. Mike G. in the morning, The Law Matters. So tune in for Mike at 7 and tune in for We the People, The Constitution Matters at 8. We are going through a series we're calling A Decent Dozen. We've already done The Dirty Dozen. That is kind of the worst Supreme Court cases that uh, were easy to pick out. Not so easy necessarily to pick out The Decent Dozen, but we found a dozen cases where the Supreme Court ruled in a constitutional, proper fashion, upholding the founders' view of law and government, not some, you know, professor's view 200 years after the Constitution was crafted and ratified and and so on. But no, what did the founders believe these words meant? And so we've been looking for cases that would specifically help us understand the founders' view and the founders' interpretation of the Constitution. And in some senses that uh, we're tracking what is the good decisions while we have already tracked the bad decisions in the in the dirty dozen. Well, this morning we've got a case from the state of New York that is it was heard uh, all the way up to the, the highest court in the state of New York, and then it was appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court dealt with this uh, case, Lochner uh, v. New York, in 1905. Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on Lochner v. New York? Uh, for a free market person, this is one of the most significant cases of the Supreme Court of the United States. It is about freedom of contract in the marketplace. Wikipedia describes the case as follows. Lochner versus New York in 1905 was a landmark decision of the U.S. Supreme Court holding that a New York state statute that prescribed maximum working hours for bakers violated the baker's right to freedom of contract under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The decision has been effectively overturned. Wikipedia adds... Joseph Lochner was a German immigrant who owned a bakery in Utica, New York, in the late 19th century. Unlike other bakeries, which used two separate shifts for evening and morning work, Lochner's bakery employed only a single crew of bakers. His bakers would arrive in the evening and prepare the bread dough, sleep for several hours in an on-site dormitory, then wake up in the early morning and bake the loaves of bread. Lochner counted his baker's time spent sleeping in the dormitory as working hours and paid them accordingly. This practice violated New York's Bake Shop Act of 1895, which made it a crime for bakeries to employ workers for more than 10 hours per day or 60 hours per week. Apparently, the workers were then free to leave the bakery premises until the evening shift. The hours were attractive to the workers who accepted employment, and they even complied with the spirit of the New York law. They were not dangerous to the workers, nor the community, but they violated the letter of the New York law. In a sense, this was an example of the difference between the common law and civil law traditions, which we will be subsequently discussing. Wikipedia continues, a five-justice majority of the Supreme Court held that the law violated the Due Process Clause stating that the law constituted an unreasonable 
unnecessary and arbitrary interference with the right and liberty of the individual to contract. Four dissenting justices rejected that view, and the dissent of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., in particular, became one of the most famous opinions in U.S. history. The Due Process Clause of the the Amendment 14, uh, Section 1, states, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of law, life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Finally, Wikipedia relates that Lochner is one of the most controversial decisions in the Supreme Court's history and gave the name to what is known as the Lochner Era. During that time, the Supreme Court issued several decisions invalidating federal and state statutes that sought to regulate working conditions during the Progressive Era and the Great Depression. The period ended with West Coast Hotel Company versus Parrish in 1937, in which the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of minimum wage legislation enacted by Washington State. Let's explore these comments in reverse order to demonstrate how websites like Wikipedia can be used for propaganda purposes, intentionally or unintentionally. Note a comment about the case in Wikipedia. The Supreme Court during the Lochner era has been described as as playing a judicially activist but politically conservative role. The Lochner era Wikipedia link states, the Lochner era is a period in American legal history from 1897 to 1937 in which the Supreme Court of the United States is said to have made it a common practice to strike down economic regulations adopted by a state based upon the court's own notions of what uh, of the most appropriate means for the state to implement its considered policies. The court did this by using its interpretation of substantive due process to strike down laws held to be infringing on economic liberty or private contract rights. The era takes its name from a 1905 case, Lochner versus New York. The beginning of the era is usually marked earlier with the court's decision in Algayer versus Louisiana in 1897. Um, and its end marked 40 years later in the case of West Coast Hotel Company versus Parish in 1937, which overturned an earlier Lochner era decision. The first thing we should note is the absence of any reference to Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. No state shall pass any bill of a tender, ex post facto law, or law, law impairing the obligation of contracts. Who labeled the, uh, the Lochner era? It's not likely the conservatives that Wikipedia speaks about. Labeling is a classic propaganda technique, and it's more likely that, in this case, it was the progressives who created the term. Notice also that the alleged span of the Lochner era from 1897 to 1937. We are led to believe that the period from the founding of the United States until 1897 would have allowed states to impose such laws which were the basis of Lochner versus New York, until Supreme Court justices suddenly became more conservative. But if we recognize that this nation's founding was a reaction to British mercantilism and that freedom of contract unimpaired by state government intervention had been generally assumed during the period up to West Coast Hotel Company versus Parish, we have an entirely different perspective on the supposed Lochner era. There are differing argument bases involved here. 
The argument in this case is curious. Cornell University's Legal Information Institute has a synopsis of Lochner versus New York, which contains this arguing language. The statute of New York State necessarily interferes with the right of contract between the employer and employees concerning the number of hours in which the latter may labor in a bakery of the employer. General right to make a contract in relation to his business is part of the liberty of the individual protected by the 14th Amendment of the Federal Constitution. However, there is no reference to Article 1, Section 10 in the syllabus, so one is encouraged to believe that the case was argued on a procedural versus a substantive basis. We may never know why the plaintiff in error, Lochner, did not argue the case on that on the basis of Article 1, Section 10, but when reviewing the case, it is reasonable to include impairment of contract as a basis. Note also that the syllabus acknowledges that Lochner did not force employees to work more than 10 hours a day and that they were free to seek employment elsewhere so that there was no involuntary servitude involved. The only coercion involved resulted from New York State's enacting law that contradicts, uh, contradicted the right of contract. Lochner versus New York is certainly about the law of contract, but there is no reference in the syllabus to the most obvious argument in Article 1, Section 10. The law of contract and its subset, the law of commercial contract, which applies in this case, has evolved over a long period of time. Richard J. Mayberry has a marvelous chapter, Natural Law and Economic Prosperity, in Whatever Happened to Penny Candy? Although the book might be considered an introduction to economics, its concluding chapter addresses the importance of a nation's legal system, which should be based upon common law or natural law. Contract law, one should do what one has agreed to do. In contrast, as Mayberry points out, under civil law, the government is a third party to all contracts. It can change any contract at any time without the consent of the other parties. Under civil law, rights are granted by government, while under common law, rights are inherent in the individual and affirmed by government. Economies existing within a primarily common law tradition not only preserve individual freedom, they are also clearly more prosperous. In that sense, Lochner versus New York may be characterized as the struggle between common law and civil law principles. There's a conflict between state police powers and federal impairment of contract here. According to the syllabus, the majority opinion recognized the argument about states' police powers. The court has recognized the existence and upheld the exercise of the police powers of the states in many cases which might fairly be considered as border ones, and it has, in the course of its determination of questions regarding the asserted invalidity of such statutes on the ground of their violation of the rights secured by the federal constitution, been guided by rules of a very liberal nature, the application of which has resulted in numerous instances in upholding the validity of state statutes thus assailed. It was also of the opinion that, in every case that comes before this court, therefore, where legislation of this character is concerned and where the protection of the federal constitution is sought, the question necessarily arises, is this a fair, reasonable, an appropriate exercise of the police power of the state? Or is it an unreasonable, unnecessary, and arbitrary interference with the right of the individual to his personal liberty, or to enter into those contracts in relation to labor, which may seem to him appropriate or necessary for the support of himself and his family? Of course, the liberty of contract relating to labor includes both parties to it. 
The one has as much right to purchase as the other to sell labor. So on what principle should the court's opinion be based? The majority of the justices concluded the question whether this act is valid as a labor law, pure and simple, may be dismissed in a few words. There is no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of a person or the right of free contract by determining the hours of labor in the occupation of a baker. There is no contention that bakers as a class are not equal in intelligence and capacity to men in other trades or manual occupations, or that they are not able to assert their rights and care for themselves without the protecting arm of the state, interfering with their independence of judgment and of action. They are in no sense wards of the state. The majority of the court held in favor of individual freedom, stating that, It is a question of which of two powers or rights shall prevail, the power of the state to legislate or the right of the individual to liberty of person and freedom of contract. Concerning the public health issue, which otherwise might be held to support a finding for the state of New York, Wikipedia relates, the court concluded that New York had failed to prove that the Bake Shop Act's maximum hours provision had any close connection to public health. Justice Holmes' dissenting opinion may well be known as that of the uh, minority in this case. The essence of Holmes' dissent seems to be embodied in this statement. It is settled by various decisions of this court that state constitutions and state laws may regulate life in many ways which we as legislators might think as injudicious or if we like as tyrannical as this, and which equally with this interfere with the liberty to contract. Sunday laws and usury laws are ancient examples. A more modern, modern one is the prohibition of lotteries. The liberty of the citizen to do as he likes so long as he does not interfere with the liberty of others is uh, others to do the same is interfered with by school laws, by the post office, by every state or municipal institution which takes his money for purposes thought desirable, whether he likes it or not. The problem with Justice Holmes' opinion is that acceptance of it leads to the conclusion that, unlike federal government, which is limited by enumerated powers, state government's powers are unlimited. The doctrine of unlimited police powers for the states has a, has a synonym, tyranny. Health and public safety are certainly legitimate concerns with state government, but these were not concerns in Lochner versus New York, as the Supreme Court's opinion mentions. But what about the more abstract concept of the general welfare, which history has shown is susceptible to extensive abuse? This is where common law and civil law collide. With civil law, Whatever the legislature enacts is considered to be uh, legitimate. The state or the state court finding in Lochner versus New York is based upon that concept. In the extreme, however, whatever the legislative body enacts is deemed to be constitutional. The role of the judicial system is merely to review statutes to determine if law has been violated or not. Common law digs more deeply to determine if the natural law has been violated. Constitutions are supposed to be based upon common versus civil law. In the words of Richard J. uh, Mayberry in Whatever Happened to Penny Candy, the premise of natural law is that there is a higher law than any government's law, and a uh, a judge's job is to discover and apply this higher law 
we must acknowledge two different perspectives, even within the natural law community. The one that prevailed until the 17th century claimed that it was natural for kings to arise and that people would be sub subject to them. This was the position of Robert Filmer, the theologian in the court of King James I of England and the author of Patriarcha. Um, this idea has been labeled the divine right of kings. It was further expanded by Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan. Opposing Filmer and Hobbes were Cardinal Bellarmine and John Locke. Bellarmine's Deleuysis states that secular or civil authority is instituted by men. It is in the people unless they bestow it on a prince. The power is immediately in the multitude, as in the subject of it. For this power is in the divine law, but the divine law hath given this power to no particular man. In the second treatise of civil government, Locke countered Hobbes with the concept that government is limited to securing the natural rights of its citizens. Locke clearly influenced Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. The battle between the concept of individual freedom and the divine right of central government was fought primarily throughout the 18th century, with the former uh, prevailing as the 13 British colonies fought for their independence. The economic equivalent of the divine right of kings was a policy of mercantilism, which reached its peak in that century. Mercantilism assumes the government has the right to direct the commercial sector of an economy in order to advance the central government's goals. It would be a mistake, however, to assume that freedom of contract was a new idea that emerged as a result of Britain's North American colonists achieving independence from the subjugation of the mother country. The idea of government protecting an individual's natural rights can be traced back to at least the 13th century and the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. The point of this review of history is to emphasize that the most difficult cases often involve a clash of legal principles. Public health, public safety, and the general welfare should not be presumed to outweigh individual freedom, including the freedom to contract, particularly when public health and safety are not threatened. It would have been preferred if Lochner versus New York had been argued on the basis of impairment of contract instead of Amendment 14's due process of law concept, but that is why the case qualifies for the decent dozen Supreme Court cases. The right party won, although we might question the primary argument made by the plaintiff. Ah, thank you, Phil. And I particularly appreciate you bringing up uh, several points. One point being that uh, the divine right of kings is really the idea behind what uh, Holmes and, and uh, subsequent justices were were uh, propounding. And so that's, uh, yeah, that, that direction we see clearly you do not have any God-given rights. Also, thank you for bringing up Mayberry's point that under civil law, government is a third party to all contracts. And, and indeed, the thing that I love about Lochner is it is is basically stating, no, 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 the government is not a third party to contracts, in this particular case, contract uh, between a baker and his employees, uh, because when the government becomes a third party to a contract, as, as uh, Mayberry goes on to say, the government can change any contract at any time without the consent of the other parties. In other words, the government gets to act like it's the king, the divine right of kings to, to choose to do whatever it wants to do. And I agree with you that really, the, I, I think the case should have been not argued so much from the uh, 14th Amendment due process, but from uh, the uh, amendment, not the amendment, but the Article 1, Section 10, the restriction on state governments that they cannot impair obligation of contract. And so when you enter into a contract, you have two parties, 
And those parties both are agreeing to obligations. And it's only whether they fulfill or don't fulfill the obligations in the contract, which was our founder's idea of the role of civil government regarding contracts. In other words, civil government basically would say, if the contract is lawful, that is uh, not a contract between a John and a prostitute, that's against the law. So obviously we can't talk about that as a contract. That's not a valid contract, but a lawful contract that is that is in, in agreement with the laws of nature, nature's God, not a contract to rob somebody or a contract to you know, take out and hit somebody, you know, mafia kind of thing. No, but a lawful contract under the laws of God, if two parties enter into that contract and they agree to the terms of that contract, then they are both obligated to fulfill the terms of the contract. And really, the only role that civil government should play is to see that if one does not fulfill uh, their part of the contract that they agreed to, that they are obliged to fulfill uh, that that contract. That really should be what uh, civil government is involved in. And so I believe Lochner was a beautiful case because it did preserve that concept of our founders, that original idea uh, of the government. And by the way, uh, our founders really believed that uh, your ability to make contracts was, was a sacred right. It was a God-given right. So, of course, the government could not interfere unless, as I said before, that contract you were entering is actually uh, a violation of the laws of nature and nature's God. But if it's not, if it's within the laws of nature and nature's God, then it is no business of the government to interfere with the contract and its formation. Its only job is actually to see that the terms and the obligations of the contract are fulfilled. So it's interesting to see that uh, Justice Harlan was also a dissenter, not just uh, uh, Justice Holmes. And and let me just quote a little bit of what Justice Harlan, Harlan's dissent was. He said, responsibility, therefore, rests upon the legislators, not upon the courts. In other words, he's saying it's not our job as a Supreme Court to, to monkey into this agreement that the legislature of the state of New York has come to that says, here's the rules for Baker's and what bakers must do when they form a contract with uh, their employees. And of course, Justice Holmes went much farther. And actually, what Holmes reveals when you read his dissent, he reveals the direction of the future beyond Lochner, because we know that Lochner, you could say, was uh, overturned. Uh, I hate to use that term because really uh, they can't change the law. The law is the Constitution. The Constitution clearly states that states may not impair the obligation of contract. And so later courts have ruled in an opposite position, which basically Oh, you can say they amended the Constitution, but they amended it in an unconstitutional fashion by issuing a judicial opinion. Uh, during the uh, uh, Great Depression, one of the things that was happening quite often is uh, people were, uh, you know, unable to pay their mortgages. And so the mortgage contract said if you can't pay the monthly payment, you have so much time and so forth and so on. But ultimately, if you're not able to meet that obligation, then the bank is going to foreclose on the property uh, as per the agreement of the mortgage contract. But because so many people were in desperate straits, the Supreme Court ruled in home building and Loans Association v. Bladesdale, this is 1934, they basically said that state uh, 
in this case, the state had, had declared a moratorium on mortgage foreclosures. And the Supreme Court backed them up saying, yes, it is reasonable under these emergency circumstances of the Great Depression that the state can pass a law that does clearly impair the obligation of contract. This is the obligation of contract. When you enter a mortgage contract, you agree to pay so much each month and you got a, a table, a mortgage table that uh, basically if you follow that mortgage table, it's a 15-year mortgage. And by the end of the 15 years, if you pay all the payments that you're obligated to pay under the contract, then uh, you are free and clear of the mortgage. The, the, uh, uh, the, the bank no longer has a lien on your house uh, and uh, you've ended, you fulfilled the contract because you fulfilled it. Well, the courts in Home Building and Loans Association v. Bladesdale reversed what Lochner established. And again, here's here's the history of the Supreme Court. We've got principles that are rightly constitutional and, and follow that. And then uh, they go off the off the rails and they say, well, you know, there's this an emergency uh, circumstances. And it's interesting to see that uh, Holmes goes into a, a couple of different avenues here. But he says this, I strongly believe that my agreement or disagreement has nothing to do with the right of the majority to embody their opinions in law. Now, he's talking about the majority in the state of New York. So he's saying, you know, if the majority of people in New York want to do something like a uh, uh, create all these laws governing what a, a baker can do in terms of hiring employees. Yeah, the majority is free to do that. By the way, our, our, our founders didn't think a majority had uh, absolute right. In fact, uh, they called that a mobocracy, where a bunch of people get together, they got an idea, and they're going to force their idea on you. In this case, force their idea on the baker Lochner. I, I think he had a pretty creative idea. You know, set up a dormitory, allow the guys to sleep after they gotten the uh, the bread started or the dough dough rising, and they can sleep through a good part of the night, and then get up early in the morning and finish the job. And and uh, obviously, there was employees who liked that deal. They decided they wanted to be part of that deal. But uh, Holmes goes on to say it's settled by various decisions of this court that state constitutions and state laws may regulate life in many ways, which we as legislators might think of as injudicious or, if you like, as tyrannical. So in other words, it's fine for a state to pass tyrannical laws, uh, laws that, uh, uh, that actually interfere with the God-given rights of the citizens in their state. And he goes on to refer to uh, Mr. Herbert Spencer's social studies and social statistics. And by the way, this becomes a theme with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. He believes that we ought to make decisions in the courts based on social research. Uh, you know, for example, uh, he goes the uh, application later on in view of the shift of the burden of proof application of the principle of judicial notice entailed counsel defending the constitutionality of social legislation developed the practice of submitting voluminous factual briefs replete with medical or other scientific data intended to establish beyond question a substantial relationship between the challenge statute and the public health safety or morals. So he's saying that if we rely on research and that research says that this is what is good for the public, then we can make decisions as a court and enforce that. And this is the beginning of uh, uh, where social research becomes the arbiter of what uh, what God-given rights you will have and what God-given rights you won't have. And uh, we could see the end result of this process that began with Oliver Wendell Holmes and continued on through many others. But uh, the end of the process is what we experienced in COVID. 
That's right. Wear a face diaper. Why? The research says so. Well, actually, the research says the exact opposite. Face diapers don't do anything to protect you from any disease. In fact, they harm your health. But no, 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 we're not going to listen to that. The propaganda. So what happens with Oliver Wendell Holmes is whoever has the loudest uh, hold on the propaganda organs in society, oh, like maybe Facebook and Twitter and, and, and the TV and media talking heads and all, whoever has control of those things to influence enough people to believe Hey, we've got the research. Trust Dr. Fauci. He's infallible. In fact, Dr. Fauci would tell you he is science. And if you disagree with him, you're unscientific. Wow, I, I never heard that before out of the mouth of a supposed scientist. But that's where this leads, that uh, both the judicial as well as, as the legislative branches of government become captivated by whoever has control of the means of propaganda in society. And we were prop- we were lied about COVID. The medical evidence regarding COVID that we now know, of course, at the first we weren't certain what to believe, but we know that it was no worse than the average seasonal flu. The people who died from COVID died at the rate of people dying in the average seasonal flu cycle and no more. There was no uh, excess death, which is what the statisticians use when they look at you know, the death toll over the course of a year, everybody dying from whatever diseases they have or whatever uh, sicknesses they have. You know, if you take the total death toll, the statisticians and particularly those who uh, work for the insurance industry study those things, those mortality tables very carefully because they want to be able to forecast what their business model needs to be in terms of how much to charge for premiums in order to pay off the life insurance policies as they come due. So they're, they're very careful to study this, and the science of of that has been very uh, well worked out in actuarial tables. So uh, you compare that, which is science and mathematics and so forth involved, with the actuality, and we find out the exact opposite is what we were being told. We're being told that COVID is this most dangerous thing. It's going to kill all kinds of people. You just think bodies piled up in the streets. Never happened. Never happened at all. It wasn't until the shots began. The shots that were supposed to cure COVID. Yeah, you get the shot and Biden promised you won't get sick and you won't go to the hospital and you won't die. In fact, the evidence is the exact opposite took place. People were dying in record numbers. Insurance companies reporting a 40% spike, 40% spike in deaths beyond what would be expected deaths. And so the exact opposite is what happened. So what what I'm arguing here is that uh, Lochner was beautiful because it preserved the balance of power Uh, between the individual forming a contract on their own and choosing to make a decision based upon their information, based upon their wisdom, as it says in the case, hey, bakers are not uh, more benighted than any other group of, of workers. They can make decisions for themselves. And contrast that with having government experts who supposedly are, have the best interest of the society and the general welfare, that they're the ones who are in control of everything, as they were in COVID. Can you leave your house? Well, well, the experts have to make the determination. Can you uh, go out without a face diaper on? And the experts have to determine that. And, and is this shot actually safe and effective, which is what they're telling us? And when you see now it's not other than effective for killing people and effective for injuring people for life and maiming people for life. So we have a situation that began with Oliver Wendell Holmes, but has turned on its head where now we're not seeing our God-given rights protected by the civil government. Rather, we're seeing them attacked and they're 
attacked using a propaganda technique of saying, look, believe all these experts. They're wearing a white lab coat. So you should trust them. They're the head of the NIH. They're the head of these various agencies, FDA, CDC. They're the head of a big pharma company. Just trust them. Don't question what they're saying. Don't question whether it applies to you. You must basically do what we in government in collusion with big pharma and big business, tell you to do with your body, even if it means you're going to get sick and die by taking our advice rather than making your own decision. I think our founders would be horrified by the results of what Oliver Wendell Holmes began and that what we've seen the result in 2020 and following with the COVID and the response to that. And I would argue we need to return to liberty. Yes, there are things regarding public health where there were clear dangers, but this was not one of them. And we had the wrong experts. We didn't have true science being done. The problem with that is if you get scientists who are being paid by the government, Fauci was the highest paid employee of the government, paid higher than the president of the United States, highest paid. And then he made millions and millions on all of his patents and so forth that because of his work, he uh, he benefited himself enormously. So should we allow the government to get in this position where it can make all these decisions for us and we do not have the freedom to make decisions for our own health care? Is the nanny state really something that is good for us? And I would argue that it is not. I would argue instead, let us try freedom. Mike, what are your thoughts on uh, Lochner v. New York? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. A lot of good information there from both of you. Um, Phil talked a little bit about how Lochner held its own particular era and that it's been effectively overturned and that the West Coast Hotel case put an end to it by overturning a Lochner era decision, not necessarily Lochner itself. But if we look up the case through Westlaw, the negative treatment flag on the case indicates that it was overruled by Ferguson versus Scrupa. And I want to talk a little bit about how this happened, because I think that's important. And it's important to note that any person can read Ferguson versus Scrupa because it's a fairly short opinion. Though Scrupa might be a bad decision, I think the opinion itself helps us understand the legal landscape much better. The facts of this case involved a Kansas statute criminalizing debt adjusting. It was a crime to engage in the business of debt adjusting except as incident to the lawful practice of law in the state. So lawyers were exempt. Surprise, surprise. And debt adjusting was defined as, quote, the making of a contract expressed or implied with a particular debtor whereby the debtor agrees to pay a certain amount of money periodically to the person engaged in the debt adjusting business who shall, for a consideration, distribute the same among certain specified creditors in accordance with the plan agreed upon. Scrupa was alleged to be engaged in debt adjusting, but Scrupa argued the business was, quote, a useful and desirable one, that its business activities were not inherently immoral or dangerous or in any way contrary to the public welfare, and that therefore the business could not be absolutely prohibited by Kansas. A three-judge panel enjoined the enforcement of the statute based on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, but not before they noted that, quote, Debt adjusting lends itself to grave abuses against distressed debtors, particularly in the lower income brackets, and that these abuses are of such gravity that a number of states have strictly regulated debt adjusting or prohibited it altogether. The court found that Scrupa's business did fall within the act's prescription and concluded, one judge dissenting, that the act was prohibitory, not regulatory. Now, in its reasoning, 
the court actually discussed a case called Commonwealth versus Stone, which was not a binding case because it came out of the Superior Court of Pennsylvania, which is a state court of appeals. In that case, Pennsylvania struck down a very similar statute, though they called it something different. The Superior Court reasoned that the statute was, quote, not to be against the public interest and concluding that it could see no justification for such interference with this business. The Pennsylvania court ultimately ruled that the state's statute was unconstitutional. In doing so, the Pennsylvania court relied heavily on Adams versus Tanner, which held that the due process clause forbids a state to prohibit a business which is useful and not inherently immoral or dangerous to public welfare. End quote. In Scrupa, the Supreme Court of the United States noted that the Superior Court, much like the District Court in Scrupa, quote, adopted the philosophy of Adams versus Tanner and cases like it, that it is the province of courts to draw their own views as to the morality, legitimacy, and usefulness of a particular business in order to decide whether a statute bears too heavily upon that business and by doing so violates due process. Under the system of government created by our Constitution, it is up to legislatures, not courts, to decide on the wisdom and utility of legislation. It continued in describing the line of cases in which the Supreme Court nullified laws based upon the Due Process Clause. It notes that, for example, in Lochner, that the court nullified laws prescribing maximum hours for work in bakeries. In Coppage versus Kansas, the court nullified a law outlawing yellow dog contracts. And I'll be honest, I didn't do research into what a, what a yellow dog contract is. In Adkins versus Children's Hospital, the court nullified a law setting minimum wages for women. And in Jay Burns Baking Company versus Bryan, the court nullified a law fixing the weight of loaves of bread. The Scrooge Court went on and described this as, quote, a time when the due process clause was used by this court to strike down laws which were thought unreasonable, that is, unwise or incompatible with some particular economic or social philosophy. It went on to reason that, quote, the doctrine that prevailed in Lochner, Coppage, Adkins, Burns, and the like cases, that due process authorizes courts to hold laws unconstitutional when they believe the legislature has acted unwisely, has long been discarded. We've returned to the original constitutional proposition that courts do not substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies who are elected to pass laws. As this court stated in a unanimous opinion in 1941, and for the record, that case is Olson versus Nebraska, we are not concerned with the wisdom, need, or appropriateness of the legislation. Legislative bodies have broad scope to experiment with economic problems, and this court does not sit to subject the state to an intolerable supervision hostile to the basic principles of our government and wholly beyond the protection which the general clause of the 14th Amendment was intended to secure. It is now settled that states have power to legislate against what are found to be injurious practices in their internal commercial and business affairs, so long as their laws do not run afoul of some specific federal constitutional prohibition or of some valid federal law. The court went on to mention, as Phil did, that Adams versus Turner was overruled by West Coast Hotel. In closing, the court also held that, quote, this statute's exception of lawyers, a denial of due, equal protection of the laws to non The court denied that the statute's exception of lawyers was a denial of equal protection of the laws to non-lawyers. And they reasoned that statutes create many classifications which do not deny equal protection. It is only invidious discrimination which offends the Constitution. 
went on to reason, quote, the business of debt adjusting gives rise to a relationship of trust in which the debt adjuster will, in a situation of insolvency, be marshalling assets in a manner of a proceeding in bankruptcy. The debt adjuster's client may need advice as to the legality of the various claims against his remedies existing under state laws governing debtor-creditor relationships or provisions of the Bankruptcy Act, advice which a non-lawyer cannot lawfully give him. If the state of Kansas wants to limit debt adjusting to lawyers, the Equal Protection Clause does not forbid it. We also find no merit in the contention that the 14th Amendment is violated by the failure of the Kansas statute's title to be as specific as Appelli thinks it ought to be under the Constitution. End quote. Going back to Lochner, I think it's also wild that the court held that the law did not meet the rational basis test. It is the lowest standard of scrutiny in constitutional challenges. Fundamental rights typically get strict scrutiny, which means the government must have a compelling interest and the law must use the least restrictive means and be narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. You have intermediate scrutiny in which you have an important government interest and the law imposes means that are substantially related to that interest. And the lowest is rational basis. The government must only have a legitimate government interest and the law must have some rational connection between the law's application and the goal. That is almost always met. We see this often when states use their general police power to enact laws. For example, when New York banned mixed martial arts altogether and kept that ban for many, many years, the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, filed suit, alleging a constitutional violation. Well, the court used the rational basis test and said that the government had an interest in protecting human beings and that human beings going to a cage and getting punched and kicked in the head was no good for them. Thank you, parent government. And as a result, that constitutional was struck down. Ultimately, economic pressures got to New York, and they ultimately lifted the ban. I do want to mention, uh, just for fun, that when Rudy Giuliani represented Donald Trump in federal court in the aftermath of the 2020 election, he was tasked with going in and, and performing the oral arguments, which he had not done in many years. Uh, he is not regularly practicing law at this point in his career. And at one point, the judge asked him what level of scrutiny should be applied, because we talked about how you have strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and rational basis. Well, Giuliani, uh, being a little rusty, I guess we can call it to be generous, he responded, you should apply normal scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, lo I love that martial arts illustration, though, Mike, because, uh, well, at one point, the state of New York said, ah, this is dangerous. People are going to get hurt, getting kicked in the head. That's not, oh, but now we're going to make some money off of it. <laughs> so right. Let's, let's go ahead and do it. You like, mean you guys can sell out the garden twice a year? <laughs> Never mind. What were we thinking? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just shows where the government's concern is. The bottom line is, is all that matters. They're really not about health or safety. By the way, I think that's part of what, what took place here in COVID. The bottom line was that big pharma made enormous, they made billions and billions of dollars off of these shots. And of course, those billions of dollars, some of that money came back to the politicians in their campaign coffers and so on and so forth. The quid pro quo kind of thing going on that is very, very tragic and actually breaks the system because then our government is not there to represent us. 
our government is representing the highest bidder. In this case, Big Pharma has billions and billions of dollars to spend, to, you know, uh, getting getting their way on Capitol Hill versus uh, we the people getting what's really best for us. And you see that come into play not only in the side of the government, uh, but you see it with the mainstream media, right? Look at who their sponsors are and which agendas they push as a result. Yeah, you almost always see a big drug company sponsoring the news, uh, even sponsoring supposedly these independent you know, 2020 and other. Yeah, just just watch for who the sponsors are because you know they're not going to say anything critical about the hand that feeds them. That's, that's for sure. Even professional sports leagues, you see them sp- sponsored by some of these organizations. <laughs> and you so have, the, go ahead. You have rules that are imposed on these leagues as a result. We see the same thing translate over to legislation, don't we? Mm-hmm. Most definitely. The curious thing to me, and, and perhaps uh, you studied this in law school, is this idea of a brief uh, that basically gives a whole lot of social science research and so forth as the backdrop for why the decision ought to go one way versus going to another way. Is that, I mean, is that kind of presented as, as, uh, as the way things are done? I'm sorry, one more time? That uh, the brief uh, in the court that would argue for a certain outcome or a certain opinion because of the social science research. You know, we had psychologists study this or sociologists do that. You know, this survey was done and, you know, kind of social science entering the courtroom as an arbiter of what is the best result in in a court case. Well, it could certainly serve as evidence and it's up to whoever the trier of fact is, to decide whether that evidence is ultimately credible. And, you know, in my practice, we deal with expert witnesses a whole lot. And sometimes the opposition will also have expert witnesses. And it's interesting because you have to get very familiar with these areas. I know you're talking about social sciences, but we spoke about DNA on this program at some point. And there are a lot of misconceptions by the general public when it comes to DNA, for example. And you have an expert goes up there, says, yes, we found this guy's DNA and we've got a match. And the jury thinks this guy definitely did it. We even see this in the news. There is, in fact, a a recent article that came out that they're requesting Donald Trump's DNA in a civil case and his lawyers are trying to block it. And of course, people on the left are using that to say, oh, he's definitely he definitely did it. You know, this guy's liable. He's a horrible human being. Why wouldn't you want to provide DNA if you didn't do it? Well, that's a very simple answer if you know the way these DNA systems actually work. You have uh, a full profile, and then what you, ha- you have what they call a partial profile that they could find on something. And if they only find a partial profile, that's like having a small portion of a license plate. <laughs> and if they've got the, the last two numbers and letters of a license plate, and that's all they have at the scene, and they take your DNA because you give it voluntarily, and your last two numbers or letters match, then they have a a match that they're going to say to the jury, we found a match on the DNA. Meanwhile, not realizing that there's a a small chance that you're actually it. You've not been uh, basically matched up with a full profile. You just haven't been excluded. If they have the last two letters and numbers on a license plate, and your last two letters and numbers match, that doesn't mean it was you. It just means it could be you, mm. but the jury doesn't hear that, right? Even if it's a non, non-jury non trial, judges don't necessarily hear that. It becomes our job to cross-examine these experts and make them tell the full truth on the stand so the jury understands. Mm. Good point. I threw us off on a little bit of a tangent <laughs> no, there, that's, but that's I was fine. just trying to answer your question in terms <laughs> Thank of you. 
these uh, expert witnesses coming in and providing reports and things of that nature. Well, let me take you to another uh, uh, tangent then uh, off of uh, the uh, Lochter case. Uh, the the action was initiated on the basis of the Fourteenth Amendment uh, due process, but basically it was decided on the right to contract. And I think there's a there's a spin-off principle here that that should be recognized, and that is that certainly once a case has been um, initiated based upon a plaintiff claiming such and such uh, a violation of the co- of the Constitution, let us say that once it's brought before the the justices, that they are free to look at the entire Constitution and not just what the plaintiff has has raised. Now we have a, a really curious case which we. Uh, discussed in the Dirty Dozen, which was the uh, uh, Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius. And we have a classic example of a failure to do that, where the uh, the Congress was very, very clear in the use of its language. The penalty that was appropriate for violation of the individual mandate was a fine, not a tax. And so uh, and there's a reason why they they did it that way. So the case goes before Roberts and and the other majority uh, uh, justice uh, justices in the opinion. And Roberts says, no, 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 no. You 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 made uh, let's say a thousand typos. Uh, you really meant a tax. It was a tax. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, uh, what about? Article 1, Section 7, that says if you are creating a new source of revenue in any legislation, that um, the process must be initiated in the House of Representatives and not the Senate. Whoops, because the Affordable Care Act was initiated in the Senate, went to the House, and was signed immediately by President Obama. Mm. So I think we we need to, to look at things. There are principles that come out of the Lochner case, I think. That ought to be emphasized. Uh, indeed. And, and I think really what uh, at least I'm taking away from the Lochner case is that there was a point at which the Supreme Court really honored the obligation of contract, that the states may not impair obligation of contract. And uh, by the time of the Great Depression, that attitude was lost. And it didn't seem from that time on that the uh, honoring contracts is really something uh, that they're interested in. In fact, I think with the, the description there that really every contract made in America today, the government is a third party to that contract. And I'm talking with a number of people who are wondering, how can I get out of that that trap? You know, so I go to go to get a job and in the job, I got to sign all this paperwork that basically pulls the government into this contract with my employer. I just want to have a contract with him. And I know that uh, I've talked to friends who uh, have, have they're working on ways they're trying to create contracts that can stay out of that system where uh, the government, uh, you know, would be part of it. And I know that there's debates whether these uh, private membership associations, PMAs, are, are a good way to accomplish that because it's people agreeing together, uh, basically make an agreement with one another for certain things. Uh, and whatever they agree to in that private contract should be sacred. It should be out of the, the grip of the government other than if parties to the contract fail to fulfill the contract, not how the contract's written or what the contract says, but if they fail to fulfill it, that's the only role uh, that the civil government should have in, in, in that. I, I don't know, Mike, are you at all familiar with PMAs? And, and they've become very popular uh, as a result of COVID because people want to step out of the system that proved itself extremely tyrannical. 
No, no, that's something that I deal with regularly. And I don't think it was our founder's design at all to get the government's nose into every person's business contract that they are forming. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, post Lochner, we saw a loss of that. And, and uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, in his dissenting opinion, began chipping away at that idea of the sacred nature of, of the contract that is a God-given right that I, as a human being made in the image of God, can form a contract with another human being made in the image of God. And we don't need a nanny interfering in that contract you know the nanny state please stay away we don't need you we don't want you go back to the nursery where you belong kind of thing uh pastor david uh you uh mentioned something i believe about emergency powers and and uh uh covid and so forth uh, ron paul sent out an email today and uh it's all about uh legislation that is being proposed by republicans in the house of representatives to basically shut down the emergency powers that were um, that were uh, set in motion by President Donald Trump during his presidency, and you know, I, I thought it was really a good time to emphasize that this is not just a reversal of a bad idea. And if we go through the process with that mentality, we're missing the point here. Um, COVID nineteen, in in a sense, is just an excuse. For grabbing emergency powers. One might ask from a constitutional standpoint, how does the president of the United States have the ability, the uh, the constitutional ability to employ these powers to declare an emergency first and then to implement, uh, to in effect, uh, destroy the constitution? And, you know, we, we don't really realize the impact of that, that kind of a, a switch from uh, the the philosophy that dominated during our nation's founding. But if we just turn the the recording back a little bit to uh, the early uh, 20th century, to the rise of Hitler, what you find out is that Hitler was able to uh, become the absolute dictator of Germany through this process. And whereas there is nothing in our constitution that allows the president or anybody to declare an emergency. There is, in effect, in um, under the Weimar Constitution, there was an Article 48 that allowed the president to do just that. And so what the Nazis did was to create a false flag operation by uh, starting a fire in the, the Reichstag, got everybody up in arms about it. And uh, then Hitler went to uh, uh, to uh, Hindenburg, who was the president, uh, and pleaded with him to give him uh, dictatorial powers, which the president did under this Article 48. Well, within 12 months, every ci civic uh, or civil uh, protection that was enjoyed by Germans had been destroyed. And in the process, Hindenburg was dead. Had Hitler merely said, well, now we'll combine the offices and nobody complained. That's mm, uh, so, a danger. Yeah, that's the danger. danger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got to be very, very careful about anybody allowing emergency powers within the uh, the, the legal system of, of the United States. And indeed, that's why we need to properly understand the limits on the executive branch, that uh, they have power to issue executive orders, but those executive orders actually only govern the people in the executive branch. So he can instruct his employees what to be doing as the employees of the executive branch, but it affects no one else in America. We need to get back to the founding and get back to what our founders uh, taught us uh, as they crafted this 
Constitutional Republic. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the airways of WFYL. Join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. as we continue our study of the decent dozen, the 12 decent cases of the United States Supreme Court.